Okay, it's 8 o'clock, so we'll get started. So we were in the middle of uh, the Ochubas of, um, of Schwartz on Yoridea, and uh, the next year was supposed to be devoted to Ebenezer, but we'll, we'll finish up uh, Yoridea and uh, try to start the Ebenezer. Uh, there's no um, hard deadline in terms of uh, how quickly we go in terms of covering the Chuba, so we'll cover whatever we cover this week, and I guess we'll continue with the series uh, next week. I think that the official advertisement said that uh, we were going to complete it uh, this week, but last week we didn't meet because I had COVID. And um, uh, next week, uh, God willing, uh, we can cover whatever was supposed to happen, you know, for this week, and then whatever's left over, we can, you know, continue afterwards if appropriate. So, uh, the, uh, we, we did a lot of chuvas on the sort of classical Yorodea, Kashus issues uh, and the like. And now we're up to Simon Ches. Simon Ches is already up to the subject of gear, which of course Rav Schwartz was extremely involved with. It was kind of an interesting thing, because in his capacity as the Abbasin of the Bethan of America, Rav Schwartz did not directly supervise gear, and he would always quote some sort of a Kabbalah uh, that he had from Yosha Ber Soloveitchik, from the Rav, uh, that uh, even though the Rub was never actively involved with the Bethan of America, he was at the head of the RCA Halakha Commission, and the Bethan of America was really an outgrowth originally of the Bethan of America, of the Rabbinical Council of America. It was reconstituted in the mid to late 1990s, which is around when I got involved, to be a separate standalone entity with its own rabbinic board and its own lay board. It was still affiliated with the Rabbinical Council of America, but was no longer an extension of the Rabbinical Council of America. But for the first uh, 35 years or so, the existence of the Bethan of America was an extension of the Rabbinical Council of America. And the Rav apparently felt very strongly that the Bethan of America should not be actively involved in conversions. He felt that Geirus, the conversion, was uh, too political, that there was a lot of pressure that was sometimes exerted upon Rabbanim to perform subpar conversions, particularly in intermarriage situations and the like. He did not want the Bethan of America to be involved in conversions. It really remained that way um, for the uh, duration of when I served as the director of uh, the Bethan of America under uh, Rabbi uh, Schwartz. What Rabbi Schwartz would do instead is that he would review certain um, uh, applications that would come in for Rabbi Schwartz to certify conversions that were performed by others to perform an issuer of conversions that were performed by others. And sometimes he would feel that he was comfortable enough with the rabbinim, comfortable, comfortable enough with the standards and the particulars of the situation that he could provide an issuer, and sometimes he did not feel comfortable about providing an issuer. But it happened that uh, the Rabbanut Rashid and Arashi Soil didn't like this system so much that they wanted there to be a, a centralized system of gear where it wasn't uh, that uh, some respected Rav was deciding which, uh, which conversions to certify and not certify, but there should be conversions that are under the auspices of a respected Besden. So here in Chicago, it was never an issue because the Chicago Rabbinical Council always performed conversions. And as long as the, the uh, as long as Rav Schwartz served as the Besden of the Chicago Rabbinical Council, he always did conversions, not only for conversion candidates within the Chicagoland area, but really also for conversion candidates uh, throughout uh, the entire Midwestern region because the CRC really serves as a regional Bezdin um, for the entirety of uh, the Midwest. And Adayim we do conversions not only for candidates in Chicago, 
but also for candidates from Memphis, Tennessee, Omaha, Nebraska, Overland Park, Kansas, uh, Dallas, Texas, Houston, Texas, uh, a variety of uh, different uh, locations where uh, the Rabbanim present the candidates to us as uh, their regional uh, as their regional best. In. But Rav Schwartz, whether in the capacity of uh, certifying uh, gayers performed by others or act- or actively. Uh, supervising the conversion uh, process uh, himself, as he did here in Chicago, was very, uh, very um, extensively involved in questions uh, regarding gear, and uh, I would uh, very uh, frequently consult with Rush Schwartz about interesting questions that came up. So this was a question that was presented to him um, almost uh, almost 30 years ago. This goes uh, back uh, to the early uh, 1990s or so, 1994 or so. Uh, can you perform a conversion for an individual who is uh, deaf? Uh, a woman who is deaf, in this particular case, uh, she was uh, deaf, uh, and therefore, we know that there are a lot of mitzvahs in which somebody who's a cherish is a potter, is exempt from performing mitzvahs, particularly if they're considered not to have das. A deaf in the Gemara meant deaf mute, it meant somebody who couldn't hear and couldn't speak, but this was somebody who fell more or less into that category. They couldn't hear and they couldn't speak, and therefore they didn't have uh, a full-fledged chi uh, of mitzvah. So could you uh, perform a conversion for such an individual? This uh, category of cherish is extended by a number of uh, the postgame nowadays to deal with the question of, let's say, the person's not deaf, but they just happen to be a person of uh, diminished capacity. They're highly autistic. They're uh, not uh, able to um, really understand everything fully. They're developmentally disabled. So many understand that they're also in this category of Kairish as well. And there's a question, can you com- perform a conversion for them? It comes up a lot when you have a situation where an entire family is converted and there's one child in the family who's developmentally disabled. So if you say, well, everybody else can convert, but this one child won't be able to convert. It doesn't seem very nice. It doesn't also seem like it's going to be very smooth or conducive uh, to the gayest process for this particular family. But in Rabbi Schwartz's case of this particular chuba, you're dealing with actually a highly intelligent person who just happened to uh, be uh, hearing impaired uh, and who also wasn't really able to express themselves verbally. And there's a whole question. There's a chuba by uh, the base of Shlomo, which is quoted by our earlier authorities um, from approximately 100 years ago or so, who says that nowadays, if you have somebody who really understands sign language very well, they learn how to speak, so to speak, Beremiza, um, uh, through uh, just uh, knowing how to uh, communicate uh, with uh, the sign language, then that's also considered to be good enough in terms of being Medabe. That such a such a Kherish, even though the person can't hear, they would be considered a Medabe Ve'en Shemea, somebody who speaks but can't hear, which is uh, considered to be on par with others who are B'nai Das, so somebody who has a full capacity in terms of their understanding, in terms of their cognitive functioning, where presumably a gay result would be uh, appropriate. But it's a, but it's a Suffolk Medina. Um, this is discussed, as Schwartz mentions in his Chuba, it's discussed by Rav Gedalia Felder. Uh, Rav Gedalia Felder, of course, was a great postic who lived in uh, Toronto. Uh, he wrote Nachas uh, 3, wrote Yisod the Yeshur, and he wrote a uh, number of um, very important uh, Sepharim. Um, on Geiris, Gittin, Hilchashabis, so all kinds of different areas of halacha. And Rogadaya Felder quotes the Bey Shlomo and leaves this as kind of like a little bit of a question mark. He was a makel, it happens in his uh, situation, where there was a man who was married to a non-Jewish woman. They had a, uh, a daughter 
who was uh, who was deaf, and the non-Jewish woman eventually converted to Judaism herself. And that was the question whether to convert the daughter. She was already a gedola; she wasn't a katana anymore. When you're dealing with a katan, a katan also is not considered minor. Is not considered to have the requisite das, the requisite mental capacity to convert. But we say ger katan mafilin also das bezdin. That's the halachas mentioning suvistaf yidalef that the bezdin can furnish the das, can furnish the, the uh, intention, the understanding. Um, for a young child, if the Bezdin considers it to be a sukhus, considers it to be meritorious uh, for the uh, child to become a Jewish, uh, and uh, this can uh, enable the conversion to take place despite the fact that the child doesn't have das. But some say there's a difference between a katan and a cherish, because if we assume that a cherish, a deaf mute, or whomever else falls into that category, doesn't have the requisite das, doesn't have the requisite level of uh, understanding uh, of um, intelligence, uh, cognitive ability, uh, however you want to define it, according uh, to halacha, they're never going to get it unless uh, some, something happens to their physical state and it changes, but we don't expect in the normal course that it's going to change. While a katan will eventually be higia of the das, will eventually become a gadol, will eventually reach a higher cognitive ability when they become a gadol. So maybe there's more room to be makel, to be lenient with respect to a, the conversion of a katan by a best and then the conversion of a, um, of a gadol. So Schwartz uh, quotes uh, the, uh, the, the discussion in uh, the Nachlas Tzviyev of Gedalia uh, Felder, and um, says that in this particular case, maybe there's more room to uh, be uh, lenient for a couple of reasons. Number one, he has this strange lotion that I can't figure out 100%. She says, he says, Ha'isha now, this woman, Be'echolta, and, and she, he's talking about a gedola, Be'echolta li'skasha be'iluk dibor la'cherem. She's able to connect be'iluk, iluk dibor, Iluk is a word that sometimes is used to suggest like somebody who's dyslexic, like, you know, that the words are spoken, but they get all mixed up. So I don't know what he means. She's able, able to communicate through, did he mean to say sign language or did he mean to say that even though her, her speech is not clear, she's able to communicate in a way that despite the fact that it's not clear at all in terms of the wording, but people can make out exactly what she's trying to get to say um, through the sounds that are coming out of her mouth. It could be that's what he means. Um, and then he goes on to say, Vigamira, and this is also a woman who happens to have a high level of intelligence. She went to school, university, whatever else. She's uh, very knowledgeable. She, he starts off the chief by saying that she goes to um, university for Haratian, university for the deaf, whatever, I guess a special university where they teach in, in sign language, I suppose. Um, and uh, therefore he says, since she has the understanding um, to accept O Mitzvot, and that the, it happens that Rafelder himself was whom he's quoting from was uh, sort of uh, inclined for those who show intelligence uh, to be in the lenient uh, direction. Um, uh, so he said, but uh, but nonetheless, uh, since uh, there were machmirim, there were those who were stringent when the person really you know is chevish, who's eno shomer eno medaber, somebody who can't hear and also can't speak. So he said that um, uh, maybe. Uh, in this case, where the woman does speak a little bit, um, he thinks that uh, the Bezdin certainly can be um, certainly can be makel. So in the end, Schwartz kind of made it easy because he said we're dealing with somebody who is capable of speaking a little bit. Maybe he meant 
uh, in the previous lines when he spoke about Elul Dibor, that the, the way that she speaks is really not clear at all, but because there is some sort of a verbal communication that makes it better. Of, of um, Yitzchak Yosef, similarly writes in his Kali Adir, he goes through all of the different shitos, and again, I apologize because I have this in the handouts, but you don't yet have the handouts in front of you. Um, uh, but you'll get it in Yes Hashem very soon. So, in fact, <laughs> as we speak, oh, yes. here comes Rabbi Liebzak. Oh, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll bring them more as they, as they come. Okay, mm-hmm. very good, excellent. So we'll just send them uh, around on opposite sides over here. Okay, so if you look on page two of the handout in the Klali Hagir, which is source above, of Yitzchak Yosef, so he points out that... There actually seem to be two uh, contradictory passages uh, regarding the, uh, the halakha on this point. If you take a look at the, the, the tour, uh, this is, uh, let's start on page one. So the tour quotes from the Bahag. It says, If you have somebody's a cheresh or a shote, deaf mute, or a shote who is generally translated as imbecile, meaning somebody who has no mental capacity at all, at all, or a katan shibali sky, or a katan son, says that, that you're not allowed to accept them as a gear at all. What about the Gemara that says, Ger katan mapilan also das best? He says, Okay, katan, I'll, I'll give you. About katan, apapishemu das. If the cotton comes with a father or a mother who's bringing the cotton, so then you could say the fact that the father or mother is going to look after the cotton and raise them in a proper Torah environment, so that's enough that it will uh, give the best in a basis to furnish their own das, um, their own uh, understanding uh, on behalf of the cotton to, to determine that this will be a suchos, a merit for the cotton to, um, to enter into the Jewish people. So the Torah is confused by this Bahag because he said that it sounds not like Rav Huna. Rav Huna is the Amora who says, Ger Kazim Apilanoso Adas Bezin. sounds like even if there is no a father or mother uh, around who's converting you know, together with the, the, um, with the child, uh, it still is possible to convert the child Adas Bezin. And the Bahag seems to limit it uh, to these particular cases. Now the base Yosef... Because you said the Torah says because no answer to them is a zuchus. It's a zuchus, but the Torah says it could be a zuchus even if you didn't have a father and mother in the picture. The Bahag seems to say only if there's a father and mother in the picture. Otherwise, it's not a zuchus. And for Cher Shishoti, it doesn't seem to allow for any possibility of conversion. If the cotton is a Cher or cotton is a Shota, can you do it on as parents? That's a good question. What if you kind of have a cotton but who also happens to be a Cher Here's where you have the problem where the person's not going to ever become a full-fledged bendah. So be a katan is not a cherish, so then they'll become a full-fledged bendah. So a katan who is a cherish is not going to become a full-fledged bendah. Because the parent's doesn't help. Well, uh, that's the question. That's the question. The Bahad seems to distinguish between the two. So if you take a look at uh, the um, at uh, the second source, the base Yosef, the base Yosef actually notes uh, this um, uh, question mark within the Bahag that's raised by the Torah. And if you go about eight lines down, with the line the beginning with Bidah, he points out that the Baal Halachas Gidolos, um, who seems to say that only a Katon who's coming together with a parent would be allowed to convert, um, it, it seems to uh, be, a, uh, and not the Cheresh Rashote, it seems to be a little bit of a contradiction with something that was said by a different member of the Gaonim, right? Of, of the Bahag, the Bahal Alakas Kedolos, was a Gaon. There was another Gaon by the name of Rabbi Yehudai Gaon. So it says Rabbi Yehudai Gaon has a different formulation. It says, Vidar de Vesim and Reish Samak Zayin, Kosovo Abeno Gaon. 
Rav Yudai says, the Ebed Katan Oshote. Let's say I have an Ebed. You can also convert an Ebed. An Ebed doesn't require Das in order to convert, so it's a little bit easier. It may be a different case. But he says, if I have an Ebed who's a Katan or a Shote, Mabilan also al Das Bezdin. But you can. Even if the Ebed is a complete Shote, forget Cherish. The Ebed is in the worst possible category. The Ebed is a complete imbecile. Nonetheless, you're still allowed to, to perform a conversion on an Ebed as long as there's a Bezdin that's supervising the process similar to a Katan. So we see Rabbi Yudai Gon doesn't really distinguish between a Katan on the one hand or a Cherish Shote on the other hand. It's whenever there's a Bezdin that's overseeing the process and determines that it's a Zuchus, it's good enough. Except you might say, oh, but an Ebed is different. So he says, for Ainsa he says, you know what? I'm going to reconcile this opinion with the opinion of the Baal Halachas Gedolos. Ain't the source of the Mashikos of Kam B'Shem Baal Halachas, the Chayr Shotz of Ekotam, Shibaldi Sky of Emekav and Mosam. He says the Evid Shiny. He says an Evid is different. The Kevan Shirishus Rabo Alav, because of the fact that, that you have the master that's looking after the Evid, so it doesn't even matter that the Evid is a Shote, the master will see to it that he won't violate uh, negative commandments or whatever it is uh, that uh, an Ebed has to keep. He has the, all the uh, obligations of an Isha, right? It's like a regular Ger that you can convert whenever there are uh, parents that, that are overseeing the process. So the question is, at the end of the day, does that mean that if you had a Cheresh or a Shote, where there really is a parent or there's an appropriate guardian or custodian, who is really seeing to it that the Cheresh will be in a proper Torah environment, even if the Cheresh didn't have proper Das. So maybe we could say, based on Rabbi Yudaygon, with respect to an Evid, uh, that for a regular Ger as well, this should also be sufficient. Uh, that's a question. The Gilead Marasha, um, whom I did not uh, duplicate in the, um, in the sources, uh, the Gilead Marasha um, uh, does say that his understanding is um, uh, that there's a Chiluk uh, between uh, the case of uh, the Cheresh and the Shoteh, uh, and the case of the katan, that only um, with respect to a katan do we rely upon the parent's supervision. But in the case of the cherish and the shoteh, um, the only uh, leniency would be if we were dealing with an evid, where you don't really need full-fledged das altogether. There's a very long chuba by Rav Shlomo Amar on this uh, subject regarding a cherish or somebody of diminished capacity or somebody who can't hear. He deals with really both categories, somebody who can't hear or speak, or somebody of diminished capacity who might be in the same uh, category. Um, and uh, this shuba was brought to my attention by none other than Rishlomo Amar, because I walked into Rishlomo Amar's office a number of years ago to ask him a shayla. I was visiting an Eretz Yisrael, Baruch Hashem. We've always had a good relationship with Rav Amar when they dedicated the best in courtroom in honor of Rabbi Gedalia Doshwas a number of years ago. I actually, that time I was living on the East Coast and I traveled to Chicago to be part of the festivities and with Shlomo Amar, um, who was then the Sephardic Chief Rabbi of Israel, came in at that time to be the special guest speaker at this event honoring Rosh Schwartz. And they, the two of them um, forged a very warm relationship with each other that also helped to facilitate the Chief Rabbinist's recognition of the whole system that was uh, created approximately 15 years ago under the auspices of, of Schwartz when we did centralize uh, all of uh, the gerus that's performed by many of the conversion courts in North America. So we moved away from the Ishura certification system that Rav Schwartz was doing to instead have actual conversion courts that were directly under the auspices of Rav Schwartz. Even when that was done, the Bezin of America did not uh, undertake 
to directly perform conversions because Rav Schwartz always insisted that we have to follow the halah of Rav Salabeshik, Rav Yoshebeir, that it's not going to directly perform conversions. So a special standalone Bezdin for conversions was created in Manhattan for the five boroughs and the adjacent areas that really were made, was made up of, his, of mostly the same Dayanim who otherwise sat on the Bezdin of America anyway. But it was officially formed as a separate standalone Bezdin. It had a separate Abezdin. had a separate Rav Schwartz did not serve as the Abezdin of, of that particular Bezdin. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the Rosh Bezdin of uh, the Bezdin, the Giyar of Manhattan, uh, became Rav Herschel Schechter. Rav Herschel Schechter, uh, Shlita, was uh, appointed in that particular capacity, but Rav Schwartz just kind of beheaded uh, the entire system and was sort of the postic for, um, for the entire system. Um, but uh, when the system was being created, it was being done in consultation with the Rabbanut Rashi to make sure that they would automatically accept all the converts who went through this system, whether through the best in the gear of Manhattan or the best in of the CRC or the, any of the other ten uh, Batidin that were part of the system. And Rabamar was an extremely important personality at that time as the Nasi Bezdin of the Rabbanut Rashid in terms of endorsing the GPS system, which remains accepted by the chief rabbinate of Israel, Adayom Mazeh. That any of any convert who has gone through the past 15 years, the GPS system um, is recognized immediately and automatically by the Rabbanut Rashid really all over the world as a valid convert. This was very, very important. And uh, we had a Baruch Hashem, we established a good relationship with Shlomo Amar. Then when I moved from my position as the director of the Betin of America to my new position at the time, before I came to Chicago, there was an intermediate position as well. That was the position of Menahel of Yeshiva Rabbeinu Yitzchak Elchanan. So I did that for five years. Um, so during that period of time, Shlomo Amar was still serving as the chief rabbi of Israel, and I would bring him on a very regular basis to Yeshiva University, and he would speak at uh, Yeshiva, and he even was the guest speaker at one of the Chag uh, celebrations that we had at Yeshiva as well. Um, so we had a, always a very warm relationship with Shlomo Amar. So we had the following case. We had a, um, a family, well, call it a family in formation. It was a Jewish man who had a child, uh, who had a child that was really out of wedlock um, with a non-Jewish woman, and uh, he was really the main parent who was raising this uh, this child. The child was, high, was highly autistic, a highly autistic daughter, um, but he was raising her. Really, the other parent was a little bit involved, but mostly he was raising her, and he wanted to convert her to Judaism, so he brought her in, and we thought she was highly autistic. She was able to answer a little bit she was able to speak a little bit. We weren't dealing with an actual cheir. She was an actual deaf mute, um, but not on a very high level, not on a very high level of functionality, let's say that. And uh, therefore, we had the question, did this person have the requisite das that we would be able to uh, convert them? Are in the, in the category of cheir, so to speak, where it sounded a little bit like the Beis Yosef, you could only be makel to, uh, for a Bezdin to perform a conversion on behalf of a Katan who's eventually going to become a Bardas, but not necessarily a Cheresh who's never going to be a Bardas, unless you say that the answer that was given based by the Beis Yosef um, to explain the Shita of Yudaigon, um, that Rishus Rabo Allah, that if there is somebody who's kind of in charge, so maybe that should be good enough, so maybe that should work for a Cheresh as well. Maybe like um, uh, 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 what Emil was suggesting, 
uh, maybe uh, the fact that you're still dealing with a katan also enables you to furnish more das on behalf of uh, the Bezdin. So at uh, that point, and uh, now what eventually ended up happening was uh, that the woman with whom he had had this uh, child out of wedlock became interested in converting to Judaism as well. Um, so it's, that was also part of this process. But she was still, she still had a way to go. But the idea was that the child would be converted and then that the, the woman would become, the, the mother would become converted as well. They would get married and they would st- start building a nice Jewish family. But the Jewish family, the premise of building this nice Jewish family um, depended upon being able to bring this child into Judaism. So this was a very serious question. And um, I asked around a little bit, you know, here amongst, you know, the American post. You know, people were nervous about this, very nervous about being Mekel. So I approached Rosh Shlomo Amar, and I just wanted to see, because I really wanted to help this family. Uh, and I asked uh, Rosh Shlomo Amar what, um, what he thought about it. And he said, oh, I wrote a tshuva on the subject. You should go and, you know, look at my tshuva. And sure enough, he had written a tshuva on the subject, and he was noted he was inclined to be Mekel. And that's what he told me. He said, I'm inclined to be Mekel particularly if you can convert her before she turns 12 years old. If you also have that additional dimension that she's also going to be a katana, and we say in general, Ger also das bezin, despite the fact that the child doesn't have das, so it's a little bit better if the person doesn't have the requisite das, so the bezin can furnish the das. And I met with Rabbi Amar, and at that point in time, I think she was like 11, 11 years and 10 months old or so. Like, you know, <laughs> moved kind of quickly, you know, after uh, that particular meeting. It happens that during the same trip in Eretz Yisrael, I also sat down with Rabbi David Lau, the Ashkenazic chief rabbi uh, of Israel, the current Ashkenazic chief rabbi of Israel, and I asked him what he thought on the subject. And he said independently, without knowing that this is a conversation, that, that he came to the same conclusion. He said that, you know, we would recognize it. If you do the conversion, you know, we at the Rabbi Nuna Rashid, in terms of your, you know, your standards of conversion, um, we would recognize that the, uh, the conversion if it was performed prior to the child becoming a goggle. So, you know, I, 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 had my, I had my marching orders and, you know, Baruch Hashem, we were able to, uh, we were able to pull it off. Um, yes. So you started out saying this before the mother along the way said she was thinking about converting. Would, would this have happened if the mother said, I'm not converting and she's still in the child's life? Because I always thought that, that the person had to be a gunnel to make her own decision if the mother was still not Jewish and in the child's life. The mother was perfectly supportive of the child converting to Judaism and the mother wasn't interfering in any way, meaning that it was really the father who was raising this daughter anyway. So it wouldn't have created interference. It's not as if we, there was a fear that the child was going to be exposed to a home that would not be a home of Torah mitzvahs. Either the child would live full-time with the father or the mother would convert as well and then they would share the home uh, together. Um, but it is a good question because when we're dealing with a cut-in situation where the child, with, let's say you have a divorced couple, for example, and the child's half the time with the Jewish father and half the time with the non-Jewish mother, so we can't perform the conversion under those circumstances because the child's not going to be um, a, a, at all times in an atmosphere that's conducive towards a Toru Mitzvah. So that is a very, very a good point. It's even true of converting somebody who's a teenager who is in that type of a situation as well. That's why we generally wait in those situations until the child can become fully independent or um, a, a, in a case where the, uh, the Jewish parent, you know, the Jewish parent would be the father, you know, obviously, um, it, it has uh, sole custody of uh, the child under those circumstances. Is highly autistic not, not considered shota? You were talking about cheira, she, she can speak, but what about the fact that she's uh, 
she's not considered a shota? Right. I mean, it's a good question. I, I, I think, you know, the shota is a very specific uh, definition. So, you know, somebody who's like, you know, they rip their clothing or, you know, they do things, a maishishtus. Like the Gemara Chagiga talks about different indications of somebody being a shota. We do not feel that this uh, girl was in that category. It was kind of a question of, is she a chayrish or is she a pesi? You know, a pesi is a sort of somebody who never gets beyond the, the sophistication of a five-year-old or a six-year-old. That might be a slightly higher level than chayrish, but still doesn't reach, you know, the full-fledged das that you would typically expect from a gadol or a, um, or a gadola. But there might be more room uh, to be makel if you would really be magdi, if you would really define somebody as a pesi as opposed to a chayrish. And certainly, when the person has uh, the ability to speak a little bit, there wasn't, you know, great sentence structure with respect to this person either. But there was a little bit of an ability to speak, to, spoil, to, to point to objects and identify the objects, to say modaani, um, to say basic brachos, you know, um, sometimes with difficulty. But you know, we were able to identify basic speech and understanding, which certainly made it uh, made it easier. So uh, the shame is so. Rabbi Meir speaks about a case if you have a, a cheresh who certainly is able to fend for themselves and they have you know full fledged das, they're just deaf mute. So then he thinks that there certainly is more room to um, more room to be made. Oh, and he quotes the various sources. But if you turn to page two um, in um, his um, uh, in his discussion um, regarding this, he says that um, you could also make the um, uh, the following uh, the following argument. Um, uh, that uh, there, uh, that maybe um, uh, whenever you have uh, similar to uh, this idea of Rishus Rabba Olav, you look at the first uh, sentence here. He quotes from the Beis Yosef. The Beis Yosef says that Rabbi Yudai Gon was maker with respect to an Ebed who was a Cheresh or Shote because Rishus Rabba Olav. So he concludes not like uh, not like the Gilyan Marsha. He says Nimsa Dein Chiluk Bein Katun Bein Shote. He says really. The only standard is, do you have Rishus Rabbo Allah or not? Rakvinin Shakatan Yavo Miyam Aviv O Imo. So he says, uh, so uh, therefore, uh, in this particular case as well, um, uh, where you have uh, a sort of a supervision, uh, there's more room to be makal, and particularly somebody who has a higher level of understanding. And then when he, after a, a significantly um, extended discussion uh, about this, he says that uh, the uh, that the bottom line is that whether they're a katan or a cheresh or a shote, if you have a das bezin situation where the person is uh, being supervised properly, then you can convert them. But you would just have to make sure that they're in an environment that they're going to. Um, fulfill Torah mitzvahs, they'll be safe from doing Averis and they'll be able to keep as many mitzvahs as possible. Um, and, um, and, and therefore, um, and uh, that uh, they are, I think there's an extra, there's a chot that's missing here, and that uh, they are being brought, uh, taught um, uh, to uh, conduct themselves in accordance with uh, this type of, uh, of an environment. Now, Rabbi Weiss in his Minchas Hashem Shabbos, is a little hesitant about this because he says that the Iker of Geiris is Kabbalah's own mitzvos. He says that the, since the Iker of Geiris is Kabbalah's own mitzvos, so he sees that there is, he thinks there's a basic distinction between a katan who's going to eventually accept mitzvos and the Geiris who's never going to accept mitzvos. So, so therefore, he's a, a little bit uh, less um, comfortable with this uh, idea. But Shlomo Dukhovsky, in a Psaktin that was written about the subject by the Rabbanut, 
uh, says that he thinks you have a man, miman of shach. You have, uh, what's the miman of shach? He says like this, and this is really, Shlomo Amar said the same thing. If you're dealing, he's dealing with, uh, again, a, a girl who's a Haratius, if she's considered a Basdas or Baskabal's Mitzvah, so then, of course, you accept her like anybody else. And if she's not a Basdas, so then she should be treated like a Gerkata, where you could say, Mapilan also Adas Bezdin, as long as you have um, some as type of an environment that's being created where there will be a proper supervision that the person will grow up in a Torah environment. But Yisrael Yosef, in his Kloliya gear, now it's a funny thing, because I did not stack the deck. I mean, I was happy with the answer that I got, believe me. But I didn't stack the deck. And during that very same trip to Eretz Yisrael, I did try to get an audience with Rabbi Yislav Yosef. But it happened that he was not available. I did not know what his shita was about this at the time. I only discovered afterwards. So I got, you know, the positive response I needed from Shlomo Mar and from David Lau, and I was ready to move on. Um, but it wasn't as if I, you know, ignored Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef. I just didn't, you know, have the privilege of, uh, you know, making a, a, being able to successfully make an appointment. So Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef says, He says his understanding of the Torah quotes the Bahag is, That no, he doesn't accept this idea that whenever you come with a parent, it's going to be okay whether you're a katan or whether you're a cherish or whether it's shodit. It's only in the case of katan, he says. And then he quotes the Gilean Marsha, who he understood, who also says that the mashba the yeshchiluk um, between the cherish and the shodit case, uh, the katan case. Um, and he explains uh, that uh, that's a, that the expo that maybe though you can say that the Haratian of our days, and again he's talking about the deaf mute who is able to understand sign language, maybe because they're able to understand mitok simanim, you could be a little bit more makele about it. And then at the end of uh, the tshuva, um, he um, he says um, uh, that the um, emes if I'm dealing with a b'dievid, uh, a type of uh, case where you already converted somebody who can speak sign language, um, he certainly would have been makele b'dievid. Now again, he wasn't talking about uh, the case of uh, the person who's sort of on a lower level of das altogether. But he says uh, that um, uh, if we're going to compare the two, he also would have been makele b'dievid, but not l'chatchila. However, he says, If the person is able to speak a little bit like a regular person and they have understanding, so then he said you could be matzah l'chatzkila. So at the end of the day, Rav Yitzchak Yosef came to the same conclusion as in the tshuva that we have over here, that especially if I am dealing with somebody who's medaberes kitzas, um, there's some type of a speech that is able to um, be understood by others, that's able to serve as a form of communication, and not just the sign language you could be making. And I expanded upon the discussion um, uh, to uh, relate it to, to our own case of not somebody who was a deaf mute, but somebody of limited capacity where um, we were a makele, um, based on the Psak of Shlomo Amar of David Lau in the discussion um, in the um, in the base Yosef uh, and the explanation of Rabbi Yehudaigon. Yes, Rabbi Zohar. One more quick question. It probably falls under the same category. But would they have been more makel if this was a Jewish couple who didn't have children were adopting a ch- adopting a child and we had these issues? I don't know. If you looked at um, Shlomo Amar, you know it's very interesting. You go back to page one, okay, in Source uh, Gimel. Um, he say, he talks about the types of situations where this comes up, right? 
says, look at the third line. It's like a situation, like I described earlier, we have an entire family, um, including maybe uh, this uh, disabled child. You know, because Rebimah really lumps it all together. Whether it's an issue of a deaf mute or an issue of a lack of das, you really have two um, uh, beneficial considerations. Um, uh, what are the two beneficial considerations? Um, uh, one is uh, that uh, the parents are bringing the child, so you know that they're going to have supervision of the parents. That's the idea of Rishus Rabo Alav. And also, it's going to be a, a tremendous hardship and the opposite of a suchus, it's going to um, be really a liability for the child if everybody else in the family is Jewish and only this child is not Jewish. It's going to uh, grow up, you know, um, together with the rest of the family, um, and with all the brothers and the sisters, without being Jewish, you know, themselves. And Rav Felder also talks about this. And he says, even if you're dealing with somebody of limited das, who's not going to be chayav in all of the mitzvot, still they are, they're going to give, you know, reward to others. When you have, like, for example, a parent that causes a child to refrain from sinning, not to be mechal Shabbos, even if the child doesn't understand it, so then that leads to the mitzvah, the mitzvah of chinuch, that you're keep, keeping the child away from a virus that the child's not allowed to, to perform, even if the child wouldn't get, you know, and wouldn't be responsible for uh, actually performing uh, the um, the Avera. And he also talks about that there are other sukhuyos besides the performance of mitzvahs. He says, the shamili diyahadus, kamo yichus. He says that there are other advantages of being Jewish besides the mitzvahs that you are obligated to perform. A very interesting Lashon and Rafelder, like the yichus of being Jewish. A very, very fascinating statement, I thought. Okay, anyway, so that there's so much for Simon Aches, which, you know, according to the timetable that I said, should have taken us about three minutes. So, now we're up to Simon Aches. But honestly, I don't really see, I was thinking about it, I don't really see a virtue of rushing. I think it's more interesting to sort of, you know, delve into all these things at great depth. Sure. Said, right, okay. And we'll go whatever speed we go. Now, Simon Aches, of Schwartz speaks about the Ian Situ the Chelek Shel Pasuk, quoting a portion of a Pasuk, meaning that there's a discussion in Gittin on Daf Samech about whether the Torah is given Megillah. Megillah nitna, no, chasuma nitna, is it given all at once? Um, and uh, concomitantly, um, are you allowed to reproduce only like a pasuk at a time or a parak at a time, or do you need like an entire chumash whenever you're going to write a chumash? And we generally assume that yes, you do need an entire chumash, even if it was given Megillah, Megillah, a little bit at a time at the end, it all came together. Um, so we say that really you're not supposed to print only one pasuk at a time. There's a special header that uh, the uh, postkim talk about in terms of uh, doing that uh, based on um, what we might call chinocha uh, considerations. Um, that the Rif brings this, and his commentary to Masech is Gittin, that if it's going to be for a chinuch reason, that, that you're uh, only writing, let's say, one pasuk, uh, because you have partial sheets that you want to teach, you know, the students in your class, so then we would say, I mean, even then, uh, that's a pretty powerful statement. We're saying, basically, you're not allowed to do it, but we're going to create this special dispensation based on the idea of the Eis Lasso Lashem. 
But otherwise, uh, the uh, postkim are very reticent about this idea, uh, if it's not for educational purposes, of just, for example, having a poster on the wall in which you're going to have a pasuk. So there's a taz in, uh, in Yeridea, uh, in Simon Reish Pei Gimel, who says that you can't just put posters on the wall where you're going to duplicate a pasuk. Now later postkim say, well, this only applies to Hamisha Kum Torah, not to Nach, because there's more latitude if you're going to put up, you know, in Meshkachek Yerushalayim or some sort of a pasuk from Nach, as opposed to a pasuk from Hamisha Kum Torah, but it's something, you know, which is uh, very serious. There's a, a sefer that was written by Rodavid Abba Mespector called Amanupa Halacha. He talks about art and the different issues of, that confront artists and people who make sculptures and drew paintings and things of that sort according to Halacha. He was a wonderful man, Mespector. He was the Rav in Beit Shemesh. He passed away. He was a relatively young man when he passed away um, uh, uh, several years ago. Uh, he wrote uh, the sefer about being a Gabai by Halacha um, which many people use. He wrote a, a sefer about drama in halakha, doing dramatic, uh, uh, dramatic uh, performances and the halakhic issues. And he wrote a sefer about artistry in halakha. And um, these are all beautiful, beautiful svarim that I recommend. I mean, they're not so available in bookstores and the like, but I know how to reach his, you know, former, how to reach his former Rebetzin because she's next door neighbors with my sister in Beit Jemish. Um, uh, so, so I have, uh, so I, I, I have this svarim. So he talks about this at great length, you know, all of these different issues. Uh, and he says that nowadays, he thinks that the ties is not applicable anymore because he says that there's such a need for chinuch that even you put us a pasuk on a poster, so there will be a lot of people looking at the poster who might not otherwise know the pasuk or appreciate the pasuk when they look at the artwork, so it will help to, to teach them. So he thinks that nowadays uh, there's more room you know, to be made uh, based on those considerations. Um, but what happened, what Rabbi Schwartz was speaking about, and he was in touch with Rabbi uh, Yisrael Wagner, Zichron uh, Levacha, who was involved with the Vat Halacha of the RCA at the time. This goes back to approximately, I don't know, 1989 or so, when he wrote the Tshuva and Tavshin uh, Memtes. Um, at the RCA, at the time, had put out new stationery. Now, on their stationery, they had uh, not, only, not even an entire pasuk, they had a chalik of a pasuk. You know, they have the additional problem of any pasuk or pasuk Moshe, and I don't know Paskina did. If Moshe didn't break up the pasuk and he made an entire pasuk, so we can't really quote from a fragment of the pasuk. So they did this with their stationery, and they also did it on their envelopes that so they would send out mailings. I mean, nowadays you don't have it as much because everything's on email, right? But when they send, would send out mailings, so people would get the pasuk on their envelopes. What do people do with envelopes? They don't generally, you know, like frame it or something. When you get an envelope, you usually throw it in the garbage. So there was a real shash, um, but number one, of the fact that the pasuk was being separated from the rest of the Chomish, and this was from Hamisha Chomish Torah, by the way, as well. And number two, the fact that it could lead to bizarre. And that's the bigger concern. Even if you have a head there of duplicating one pasuk for a poster or painting or a parsha sheet based on Eis Lasos Lashem for Achinot purposes, um, there's no head there to be mevazeh. To me, mevazeh shem Hashem. I mean, that's uh, the idea. Losasim ken Hashem elokechem. That uh, where uh, we say vibatem es shemam. Um, uh, that we wipe out the names of idols uh, and uh, you know and idolatries, but we are supposed to treat the name of Hashem and also divrei Torah. We're supposed to and kisvei kodesh. We're supposed to treat with, uh, with with respect. So that was the bigger concern that he had in this uh, particular case. So um, uh, Schwartz was asked, "What do we do um, with the stationery? What do we do with the envelope?" So he starts out. 
quoting from Shiloh Tshuva of the Rambam. The Rambam is quoted by Rabbeinu Yerucham, um, but, the, the, and, but he's also quoted by a uh, respecter, um, who I you know, duplicated a page from his sefer, where he has the entire Tshuva of the Rambam. The Rambam um, speaks about uh, somebody who embroidered on his talis um, uh, the parsha of Bayomer, meaning the third parsha of Kriyashma. I thought it would be a nice thing to embroider the entire parsha on the talis. Is this something which is appropriate to do or not something which is appropriate to do? And the talis here, it seems like we weren't merely talking about a talis godo, but even like a talis kata that a person might take with him to the bathroom, for example, because a talis is a tashmish mitzvah, you can take into a bathroom, but, you know, a chumish is a tashmish kedusha, you're not really allowed to take into the bathroom, because that would be a, a bizarre. So the Rambam in his tshuva says that, that he thinks it's eno nachon, for two different reasons he thinks it's a problem. Number one, um, that we're not supposed to just write random sukkim from the Torah. That's the sukkim gitin that we spoke about before. Um, uh, there is a heter if you're only writing, you know, three words at a time, um, and uh, you or you write it like with a shinoi. But here they're writing more than three words at a time. Um, uh, so he says, uh, and uh, even though there were those who wanted to say that the ister is only if you're writing it like on a cloth and with a special ink and with sabashuris, he said that um, he doesn't uh, think that um, there is that uh, limitation, at least with respect to a sefer udio. You know, the, if you're writing sabashuris, so you have a separate problem. Some posts can say that even if you're not writing divrei Torah, to write anything in sabashuris, you know, could be uh, could be problematic if you're going to bring it into a bathroom or something. And he says that the second reason, says my second reason for answering it is stronger than my first reason, interestingly enough, as he's saying, he knows that for the first, you know, reason, you have the heter of the riff, you know, maybe, uh, it's with a, but he says, it's going to bring to zilzul, because the tzitzis are tashmishe mitzvah, um, person's going to go into the bathroom. They're going to go into an outhouse so wearing uh, this tzitzis that has this apostolic embroidered on it. Um, and, um, and therefore, how can you bring psukim to a place of tinopis and zuzuv? Without any question, this is going to be a bizoyatora, and therefore that's why the Rabbim says that you shouldn't do it. And that's why if you take a look at the source sheets as well for this particular, um, on page three, um, is it on page two, maybe? Still on the bottom of page two, you have the shach who explains from this ruling in the Shulchan Aruch that you're not allowed to embroider a psukim in a talis, also the rakim psukim batalis, and she may be psukim Torah, the day zozo is going to bring things to, um, to zozo. And then at the three lines before the end, he says, even though Rabbeinu Yucham brings another reason, really that reason is also from the Tshuva Saramim, as we just saw, that because you're not allowed to write to, from the Torah Psukim, so he says, there, Nispashit Amin He doesn't give a reason as to why Nispashit Amin but we just gave it based on this explanation of the riff and Rav Spector and so forth, why Nispashit Amin um if it's not going to come Lidei Zilzo, but if it will come Lidei Zilzo, so he points out, so then you have, um, then you have a serious problem. This came up recently. We had one of our local stores. They wanted uh, to uh, kind of be mechazik uh, their workers or create sort of like a, a nice um, environment of um, friendliness, uh, shall we say, uh, in terms of the store environment. So they gave out t-shirts 
Um, and the t-shirts, you know, one of the t-shirts said, Behapta l'reicha kamocha. Another t-shirt said, Poseich asyadecha must be l'chokhai ratzon. So we had a concern that we, we said, this is really a beautiful, wonderful thing that you're doing. But there's a concern. What's the concern? The concern is that we don't want your workers to, at least one even necessarily Jewish workers, to, you know, take bathroom breaks, you know, wearing these t-shirts because it's going to be mizalzel the psukim. So we said, it's a, it's a really nice thing to have. But, you know, you have to be careful that you uh, should not bring uh, psukim from the Torah, even if it serves a nice educational uh, purpose. Um, so um, we finally gave permission for not to bring in the bathroom, but there's a separate discussion. Whenever you write, if you're, let's say you're writing in the Gerashon, you're writing a letter, so you write, you know, three words or more, you're supposed to do sirtu, you're supposed to underline it. The folks can say that, if it's something which is only derech tzachus, if it's something which is uh, that uh, just like an expression, like a common expression that also happens uh, to be um, uh, to be a pasuk, um, uh, so then uh, there's room to uh, be makeup that you don't have to do uh, that you don't have to do sirtu. Um, uh, so uh, the uh, and this is also brought in the shulchan aruch. So uh, on this basis, some say that okay, so if it's a common expression. Maybe there's less of a concern of zilzul as well. If it's you're just like you're not necessarily quoting from a pasuk in the Torah, it's just like an expression. Me after the reicha So with me after the reicha we said you can continue to use that one, but you have to be very strict. It can only be uh, worn um, in the surfacing area, and whenever the workers you know are going to go to the bathroom, then they can't work, wear it outside the area, or even you know it's only going to be within that area. So they know when they leave the area, whether to go to the bathroom or to do anything else, they can't wear. The shirt. Now it's like the compromise, you know, that we made under those circumstances. But what about in terms of the um, the envelopes and uh, the uh, and the stationery? Yes. All right. I want to go back to the first opinion. I'm sorry yeah. to keep dominating questions, but I was thinking things like even even the embroidering according to that very first opinion you gave. It isn't necessarily chinuch to put it on our own kodesh. What would the hetero be for that? And that's what I wanted to know. No, so that so would I be considered. So that would be considered to be some sort of a chinuch that it's like you know giving kavod shemayim that it's on a holy object. It's like you know you have a sefer in which you're writing holy things. So here you know you're on a holy object. So you wanted to inspire holiness when people look at it. So they should you know think holy thoughts. Okay. So therefore, like we have the aseres and you have torah sibolano. So it's an appropriate setting to inspire those types of holy thoughts. So he does bring the question as to whether if you don't make an exabashivist is that any better. So he quotes uh, the uh, the Radvaz who says uh, that it's a problem um, it's a problem no matter what. Um, even if you write a Pixabach here, it's going to be a problem uh, because of uh, the fact uh, that it's uh, going to be a bizarre. If you're going to just, you know, like throw it in the garbage or something. Um, uh, so uh, the, um, now he does quote from uh, various chuvos, and there's a famous Nitziv on this in the Meshiv Dover. If something is produced for the purpose of throwing out uh, originally, like, for example, they would prepare Svarim and there would be a lot of uh, the draft paper in which uh, they would have the original galleys of a sefer that were not intended to be, you know, they would just mark it up and make corrections. They were not enti- intended to be, you know, the final uh, product, and they would have to, you know, throw out that paper, um, uh, what, uh, they, um, what they called the correctinins, the correctinins, 
Okay, they were written in Yiddish, but it means corrections, correction paper. Um, so uh, there were many posts, Achiezer, the Nitzit, who were Mako on the, the uh, subject of the correction paper because you need it in order to get to the final product and it's produced for the purpose of it discarding altogether. So he said that that's, you know, one possible letter. Another heter is that maybe it's not printed L'Shem Kedusha, but here the RCA kind of was printing it, you know, L'Shem Kedusha. They wanted to show this is an important thing that we stand for. So they wanted, you know, that, um, that, that pasuk. So he comes to this very, um, and he says, Ravadi Yosef dealt with a difficult Shaila where they had published some sort of a pasuk from Yishayahu on uh, the um, Israeli uh, shekel bills. Um, uh, so uh, then the uh, whole question became, what do you do with it? And he had to really do mental right. gymnastics in order to find some sort of aliment schus. But at the end of the day, said Rabbi Yosef, Nasem Mishke Chomor. They really made a huge error that that surprisingly, shockingly enough. Um, the government did not actually consult with the Gedolim Yisrael on these issues. So, you know, um, maybe, maybe now, you know, Baruch Hashem, whatever you think of the government, at least it's more likely that they will be consulting, you know, with respect to these issues. So that's certainly a positive thing. So Rav Schwartz came to this conclusion. He said, He says, you know what? The stationary, I think, is okay because the stationary, presumably, uh, the letters themselves have like some substance to them and therefore it's not something which is intended or is clearly um, designated for Bizarian from the very outset. It's going to be used to learn Torah, to focus on communal matters. He says, They should just be instructed, oh, by the way, when you finish reading your letter, don't throw it into the garbage, okay? Because you have a postage written on it. But as far as the envelopes are concerned, he said, you may not send out these envelopes. He said, I am not authorizing even Bidiyevit the use of these envelopes. Because people throw out envelopes. We know they don't even look twice at it. They're going to throw out the envelopes. He said, you're going to have to suffer a loss. Okay, well, that's what you get for not consulting with me, you know, <laughs> before you decided to print the envelopes. Um, and he says, and if it's going to be difficult to do a Geniza with them, so then he says that you can rely upon uh, the post game about uh, the correction paper in terms of they're going to treat it, especially if uh, it's going to be taken out uh, by the um, by the non-Jews uh, to burn it because uh, then it might be considered to be Grama. And you should know, but Moshe Feinstein didn't like this whole hetzer regarding the Grama, but it is based on a Gemara and Shabbos and Dav Kof Kofam and Beis, a person has Shem Hashem written on their skin. Rabbi Yossi says, Yoed Vitovel Kedar, and you know if it just happens to wash off it just happens to wash off so things that happen through gumma may not be that terrible but the most important part I think is this last line where you know Schwartz was always the most gentle person you know but so he gives gentle musr his gentle musr is but do not order more of the stationery. Stationery you have, you can use, but you know, when you use it up, when it's over, so, you know, no more, no more. Okay. Yeah, thinking, like in the center, I mean, even the Pasuk, that was not the end of the Pasuk. It's really two Pasukim. We have that numerous examples in the Shashat Zichonot. Yes. So those are incom- people don't realize they're incomplete. That, that's correct. That's correct.
correct. So, Look, um, I mean, Mechaim Elozhna used to say you shouldn't say an incomplete bar pasuk and say Bezel Satoa. Then you should say the whole pasuk in um in Baaloscha. Pi Hashem Yachnu, Pi Hashem Yisol, Yisushvas Hashem Shemal, Pi Hashem Biad Moshe. You gotta say the whole pasuk. So, is there any difference between parts of a pasuk or a whole pasuk that the the the, the title of the tshuva says chelik shel pasuk, but everything you said was going even on whole psukim. Right? That's correct. That's correct. It would go on, and, and it's, it happens. And in this particular case, what they did was a shtickle worse. You know, maybe if it had only been three words, it could have been a shtickle better. But you know, it was a shtickle worse because of the fact that it wasn't even an entire pasuk. But had it been an entire pasuk, of course, that's a, that's still a problem. It's still a problem because they still because the main problem that we're dealing with over here is not the question of the reproducing of the psukim. There's more room to be makele about to that if it serves an educational purpose. The main problem was that it's going to lead to bizarre. It's going to lead to you know these psukim being you know thrown out uh, in the garbage unceremoniously. Um, so we have uh, okay five minutes. So we'll start at least. Simon Yud, very very important. Um, a, a subject that Rosh Schwartz really felt very strongly about, and this is, you know, the importance of making appropriate provisions for Lacha Mary Esrim. Being in Chasimah's he was talking about like healthcare proxies, you know, living wills. Um, a person who is giving instructions about what treatment um, they wanted to receive or what treatments they would not want to receive if they are in very dire straits um, and they might be uh, heading uh, towards uh, their demise. Um, is it is it appropriate to sign this type of a living will um, call it um, healthcare proxy form where you are giving instructions that you would not want to be uh, resuscitated under certain circumstances that um, in the event the person that won't have necessarily the state of mind to give instructions um, that they want people to know, uh, you know, DNR, do not resuscitate, do not intubate, um, do not, um, uh, do not engage in aggressive medical treatments that's only going to prolong the dying process, or is it necessary under all circumstances, no matter how painful, no matter how much the person will suffer, um, to take all measures to prolong a person's life every single additional second that is possible. Um, so Rav Schwartz points out that we really do have a tension in halacha in this regard. On the one hand, and Rav Schwartz, you know, really, you know, felt that, that it was a tension, and uh, he did, felt you had to be very circumspect. He didn't have like a very, you know, a strong agenda. Like some people have a very strong agenda when it comes to these items. No matter what, you must, you know, prolong uh, the person's life. You know, even if they're screaming and yelling, no, no, I don't want the treatment. Um, don't do it to me. Um, and some have a strong agenda that, you know, we can't uh, keep people going forever and you have to, you know, at a certain point say enough and, uh, uh, and don't uh, try to engage in aggressive treatments altogether. Schwartz felt that you needed sort of a healthy balance. Sometimes it is appropriate uh, because he quotes the Balatanya and he was fond of this Balatanya who says uh, that we're not in control of our own bodies, right? Uh, there's a pasuk in uh, Yecheskel that Rabbi Eliezer Yehuda Waldenberg liked to quote. Rabbi Eliezer Yehuda Waldenberg, that says Eliezer, was, of course, of the opinion um, that uh, you should and you're obligated to uh, prolong a person's life every additional second, even if it's going to cause tremendous agony. And a person doesn't have a right to say, oh, spare me from the agony, because a person does not have ownership over their own body. And that's uh, very articulately expressed by the Balatanya. Asur Mahakos Somebody says, hit me, okay? 
Um, they're in a boxing ring. He says, hit me. He says, no, what are you talking about? I'm not going to hit you. Avilu uh, knows him, though, it's just when you have all these spectators, they're going to be, you know, disappointed if you don't hit me. I'm sorry. They shouldn't have put me in the ring. Avilu knows him, though, it's just like, so even if he gives him permission to hit, to hit him, you can't do it. Because a person does not have, does not have that authority uh, over their own body to cause uh, affliction to their body. But Salvation used to say you don't have authority over your own reputation um, to say that a person can speak Lashon Hara against you because you have, your, your reputation also belongs to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Um, you don't have the right to do that to yourself. You don't have the right to afflict yourself. So Rav Schwartz uh, quoted from uh, the essay that was written by Rishlomo Zevin called Mishpat Shailach, the Fialacha. He wrote a whole Torah essay about the merchant of Venice. You know, you don't see this as much amongst the Tamadik Hakamim of today, of, you know, writing, you know, essays about a Shakespearean play. But he wrote a whole essay about why the contract, um, that between who was it, Antonio and uh, Shylock, was not an enforceable uh, contract. And he said, because um, a, a person does not have the right to give up a pound of flesh, to say, oh, if I don't pay you, so you have the right to take a pound of flesh. It's not enforceable. Not enforceable because it's not, your, you don't have ownership over your body to uh, um, authorize somebody to take a pound of flesh. Certainly not from your heart, as is implied in the play, but you know, even from another part of your body, you don't have that type of um, an authorization. Um, at the same time, he also quotes from the Igros Moshe favorably, but Moshe Feinstein said that sometimes you pray for a person to die. He quotes from the Ran. He said nowadays they say that most posts can say we don't have, we're not on the level to decide when to pray for somebody to die. But, um, but theoretically, if you determine that somebody is really just uh, suffering and that it's going to be too much of a hardship for them to continue to live and you're just prolonging the dying process, then you should even pray for them to die. And uh, therefore, when a person is in that type of a situation, even if they didn't give an authorization, it was not appropriate to continue to give them treatment to prolong uh, their, uh, their, their life. When you're not really prolonging their life, you're prolonging their death. Um, and so he quotes from Moshe, who really basically says in those types of situations, um, uh, don't prolong a person's life, don't shorten a person's life, because that's considered to be murder. You're going to actively shorten the person's life by like, taking them off a respirator. Um, uh, but basically, don't prolong, don't shorten, and just do whatever you can to diminish the pain. And says uh, that it is appropriate for a person uh, to uh, sign a uh, type of a health care proxy or, or health or uh, living will order in which they say that if they are in the dying process, so then they don't want extraordinary treatments that are only going to prolong the death. But he says, four important principles that will end with this. Um, he says, it's okay to refuse treatment, but you have to consult with a competent rabbi about when um, it's appropriate to, to give up and not to have further treatment because you can't make that determination yourself. Number three, don't trust the doctors. So don't trust the doctors alone because sometimes the doctors have different agendas and sometimes, you know, they may not have a full-fledged halakhic understanding. And number four, the rabbi shouldn't trust himself. That even a competent rabbi has to consult with doctors, but he should consult with from doctors. Okay, let's start. Well, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is really... Uh...